some extended reading there and kind of scattered through, but I was just trying to highlight some of the main points of these chapters. Last week we saw that God sovereignly debases proud sinners and restores undeserving captives. The theme of pride comes up again in this next section, the very end of chapter 14 all the way through chapter 18. And here we see judgments against various pagan nations, uh, Philistia, Moab, Damascus, or Syria, and finally Cush or Ethiopia. More importantly, we see a series of contrasts between God's ruler, God's throne, and God's people versus pagan rulers, thrones, and peoples. In summary, the main point of these chapters is, I think, that God establishes his dynasty in Zion. God establishes his dynasty in Zion. A dynasty, a line of kings, involves both the ruler, the person himself, and the place from which he rules. In this case, the ruler is God's appointed king, and the place is Zion or Jerusalem. But immediately, there seems to be a setback in this confident assertion. When we look here at the end of chapter 14, uh, this, this idea of God establishing his ruler and his place seems to be in question because verse 29 of chapter 14 says, Don't rejoice because the rod that struck you is broken. So it seems like the king has died. And how do we know that this is the case? Well, verse 28 says it. In the year that King Ahaz died, this oracle came. So we have here the response of the people of Philistia uh, to the death of the king of Judah and their response is rejoicing. But I think in these few short verses at the end of chapter 14, we see this, this truth. God's plan hasn't failed even when his ruler falls. God's plan hasn't failed even when his ruler falls. First of all, we see that Ahaz died, so the threat to Philistia seemed to be over. I think it's important for us to remember that King Ahaz wasn't even the greatest threat to Philistia. In comparison to him, you have uh, in 2 Chronicles 26, you don't need to turn there, I'll just mention it for you. 2 Chronicles 26, we see that Ahaz's um, father, rather his grandfather, Uzziah, is the one who has great success against the Philistines. He went out and warred against the Philistines, broke down the wall of Gath, of Jabna, of Ashdod, and built cities near Ashdod and among the Philistines. God helped him against the Philistines and against the Arabians, the Maonites. And verse 8 says, His fame extended to the border of Egypt, for he became very strong. So Uzziah, Ahaz's grandfather, was the one who had the most success against the Philistines. Uh, his father, Jotham, had some continued success against the same peoples. For example, the Ammonites are paying him tribute, and so we can assume that the Philistines are also somewhat suppressed in his day. Ironically, Ahaz himself had lost territory to the Philistines. Um, in chapter 28, 2 Chronicles 28, verse 16, At that time King Ahaz sent to the kings of Assyria for help, for, against the, for again the Edomites had come and attacked Judah and carried away captives. The Philistines had also evaded the cities of the lowland and of the Negev of Judah and had taken all of various cities. And the reason, verse 19, For the Lord humbled Judah because of Ahaz king of Israel, for he had brought about a lack of restraint in Judah and was very unfaithful to the Lord. So Ahaz's grandfather was the greatest threat. Ahaz's father was somewhat of a threat. Ahaz himself had lost territory to the Philistines and so perhaps was the least of the threats. But the fact that he had died, they thought, well, any threat that's going to come against us is over. But through Isaiah, God warns them that um, with these images of snakes and of trees, that they are not to think that they will have continued success against God's people in Judah. And I think we see this in the reign of Hezekiah, that God gives peace and prosperity and all these things and success against these nations that had attacked uh, the people of Judah. He uses two images. One is the idea of a tree 
So here's this, this strong rod, and, and it's, it's striking against them, and now it's broken. And so it looks like it's done, right? But in contrast, he says that in verse 30, I will destroy your root with famine. So we see this imagery commonly in Isaiah. Uh, God's appointed king, his appointed ruler, is described as the rod and the root of Jesse, the, the sapling that's coming up from this devastated stump. There's all this imagery of, of, of a tree that looks like it's destroyed, but then has new life coming up from it. In contrast to that, here's a tree that looks strong and powerful, representing the Philistines, and he says, I'm going to strike it with, with drought, and it's going to wither and die away. There's also this image of the serpent. So if you found uh, some kind of a snake and you killed the snake, you might say, that's a good thing. The snake's dead. It can't threaten me. It's not going to bite me. And it's, it's basically saying you kill the one snake and then a very more, much more poisonous viper arises from where you killed the first snake. And so they think, well, Ahaz is dead. We have no threats. Well, then God's going to raise up Hezekiah and other kings that are a greater threat to Philistia. In fact, even the helpless and needy would be secure against their attacks. We see this contrast in verse 30. Those who are most helpless will eat and the needy will lie down in security. I think that's referring to the people of Israel based on verse 32, where it says the afflicted of his people will seek refuge in Zion. But in contrast, the people of Philistia, I will destroy your root with famine and it will kill off your survivors. We think we're strong, we'll be cast down. We think they're weak and they will stay weak. But even their afflicted and needy will be secure. And even the strongest of our people will die of hunger when the famine comes that destroys our power. So God's going to bring judgment against Philistia. He's going to judge their misplaced confidence to show his favor toward Zion, toward his own people. The city of Philistia is personified as weeping, that the gate is crying out, that the city is weeping. Why? Because there's this storm coming down. It's like this, this fiery storm sweeping down, which is figurative for the soldiers. It says, there's no straggler in the ranks. So how do we know it's soldiers? Because there's no straggler in the ranks. There's ranks of soldiers. Usually you've got somebody who's lagging behind a little bit. He's saying, this army is going to come so confidently. There's not even anybody just lagging behind and out of step with the ranks. They're just going to come. They're going to sweep over you. It's going to be like a, a firestorm that burns a forest down. You're going to be destroyed by that. You're going to be destroyed by drought and famine. And this judgment is going to come upon you because of your pride. And this would happen to show that God established Zion and his favor was on her. Despite the fact that his people, Judah, didn't really deserve it. King Ahaz was a wicked king. Many of the people followed after him. They didn't deserve God's deliverance, but for the sake of his name, he would deliver them from Philistia. And so our first contrast here in this passage, these chapters, is the contrast between the rod or root of Zion ultimately pointing to Christ, but here to the king God has appointed, versus the rod or root of Philistia, their leader, their ruler, their, um, the one that they're trusting in. God's rod or root would be established because he founded Zion and chose Israel. Philistia's rod or root would be destroyed because they had opposed God's people. The next chapter, chapter 15 into 16, we turn to the God's judgment against Moab. And here the contrast is not so much against the ruler specifically as it is a contrast between their places of worship. The exalted places of pagan gods versus the exalted place of the true God. In chapters 15 and 16, we see that God brings weeping to pagans to turn them to a righteous judge. God brings weeping to pagans to turn them to a righteous judge. Why does he do this? Well, first of all, he brings weeping to them because of their idolatry. Uh, we see this 
first of all, in chapter 15, in the beginning here, their cities are destroyed and the weeping is found even in the place where they're worshiping their gods. Verse 2, they've gone up to the temple and to Dibon, even the high places, to weep. The weeping includes marks of mourning like shaved heads, sackcloth, and dust, and, and wailing, and all these sorts of things. Even for the warriors, verse 4, therefore the armed men of Moab cry aloud, his soul trembles within him. And so this destruction has come upon the people of Moab because they have again exalted themselves against God, they've persisted in idolatry, and when this destruction comes, they can't escape it even in the sanctuary of their own gods. It is interesting, though, in the end of chapter 15, that God's servant, Isaiah here, expresses compassion toward them, but without excusing their sin or saying that the judgment would be delayed. Verse 5, My heart cries out for Moab because they go up weeping, because the grass is withered, their abundance is destroyed, the cry of distress has gone out, the waters are full of blood, I will bring added woes upon them and a lion upon the fugitives and the remnant of the land. So it's fascinating that God's servant here would show compassion and weep with the people who are facing God's judgment because of their idolatry. I think it mirrors the compassion that we see in the New Testament of Jesus toward those who are scattered, going their own way, having rejected God, that he might bring them and restore them to relationship with God. But God brings weeping to pagans because of their idolatry. And so, uh, just as a quick aside, if your life is miserable... it would do you well to ask yourself, why is my life miserable? It is good for us always to start with, is my life miserable and full of difficulty because of sinful choices that I persist in? Now that's not always the answer. John 9 in the New Testament, why is this man blind? What did he do bad? Him, his parents, somebody else? No. God caused him to be born blind so that Jesus would come and give him his sight. God would be glorified. He would come to trust in Jesus. So not in every case is the reason for difficulty, here's a specific sin that I have done. But having said that, we are too quick to jump to, I'm good and there's no reason this is happening to me. We should always start by saying, is my life miserable and difficult because of sinful choices I have made and continue to make? When we come to the next little section here in chapter 16, we see that God opens his city to the afflicted of Moab as well as of Israel. And when it talks about the tribute lamb and the daughters of Moab saying, give us advice, let the outcast of Moab stay with you, be a hiding place to them, and then it talks about the throne being established, the people of Moab are scattered without a leader because of God's judgment that's come upon them. But there's a sense in which Isaiah is calling them to appeal to the people of Judah can we come as refugees into your country, into your city? Can we, we have no strength or pride or help or anything on our own, can we come and attach ourselves to you that we might be delivered along with you? Why? Because this is where God's power is being established. The extortioner comes to an end. Oppressors disappear from the land. A throne will be established in loving kindness. A judge will sit on it in faithfulness in the tent of David. Moreover, he will seek justice and be prompt in righteousness. God uses this weeping, this destruction, this punishment, this devastation, so that the people of Moab and other pagan nations around the people of Judah would come to where God is establishing his throne and come to where God is appointing his ruler 
and turn to Him for help instead of trusting in false gods and turn to Him for deliverance instead of seeking to be delivered on their own. And so they need to look to the righteous ruler established by God. Now, ultimately, none of the kings of Judah live up to the ideal of verse 5. A throne of loving kindness, a judge of faithfulness, who seeks justice and is prompt in righteousness. We see glimpses of this, right? Solomon makes wise decisions. Uh, David was a man after God's own heart. Some of the other kings aspired to be great rulers and for a time followed after God, but all of them failed. Ultimately, the throne that this anticipates is the throne of Jesus reigning when he comes to rule over the earth. But in the immediate future, God is calling out to the people of Moab, attach yourself to the people of Judah that you might find deliverance and help. And yet the tone changes yet again in verses 6 and following where we see that God will not spare those who persist in idolatry. So God brings weeping because of their idolatry. The goal is that they would turn to his righteous ruler. But if they persist in their idolatry, here's what continues to take place. We see that in verses 6 through 14. We've heard of the pride of Moab and excessive pride, even of his arrogance, pride and fury. His idol boasts are false. Therefore, Moab will wail. Everyone of Moab will wail. What will they wail for? What will they moan for? Um, so raisin cakes, like they had the fruit of the vine and they were able to produce food from it. And here's things they greatly enjoyed. They're not going to be able to do those because their vines are all destroyed. Their crops are all ruined. Their homes are burned. They're defeated by enemies. And so we have... Um, all this imagery of agriculture that's failed in verse 8, for example. Uh, the fields of Heshbon have withered, the vines of Sibma as well. The lords of the nations have trampled down its choice clusters. Verse 9, Therefore I will weep, I will drench you with my tears. Gladness and joy is taken away from the fruitful field. Verse 10, uh, In the vineyards there will be no cries of joy or jubilant shouting, no wine in the presses. For I have made the shouting to cease. Even God's servant is going to mourn with them at the extent of their destruction, even though it's clearly self-inflicted because of their stubborn idolatry. And when they come even again to worship their false gods, verse 12, when Moab presents himself, wearies himself upon his high place, comes to his sanctuary to pray, he will not prevail. He's weeping because destruction has come to him. He can't even escape it in the sanctuary of his God. He's admonished, turn to the people of Judah, find refuge among them. But if you persist in idolatry and you keep seeking after your false gods, you're going to come, they're not going to hear you, your prayers will fall on deaf ears or ears that don't even exist, and you will continue to face God's judgment. So this judgment is certain and imminent in verses 13 through 14. This is the word which the Lord spoke earlier concerning Moab. But now the Lord speaks, saying, Within three years, as a hired man would count them, the glory of Moab will be degraded along with his great population, and his remnant will be very small and impotent. And so we see here there's an opportunity for them to repent. God brings disaster to turn them to him. But when they fail to do so and persist in idolatry, their prayers will not be heard. And so God's judgment will fall very shortly within the space of three years. We see a very similar thing here to what we saw in Isaiah 7 and 8. Within two years, uh, the king of Syria and the king of Israel will both be cast down and they won't be a threat to you, Judah. Here, within three years, the king of Moab will be cast down because of their idolatrous pride. As we move on to chapter 17, I think we see this with yet another nation, Damascus representing Syria. God strikes down idolatrous pride 
in order to return his people to true worship. So there it was this idea in chapters uh, 16, uh, 15 to 16 that God brings weeping to pagans to turn them to the righteous judge. Here it is that God strikes down idolatrous pride so that people would return to true worship. God strikes down the idolatrous pride not only of his own people, but also of their allies. So we see of Damascus, Damascus will be removed from being a city and become a fallen ruin. And then we see in verse 3, the fortified city will disappear from Ephraim and the sovereignty from Damascus and the remnant of Aram. They will be like the glory of the sons of Israel. And verse 4, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. We'll see that in just a moment more. But God is not just punishing pagan nations but also the northern tribes of Israel who have persisted in idolatry. They will go from being a proud city, for example, Damascus, from being a city to a fallen ruin. They will go from self-rule to being ruled by others. Sovereignty will disappear. And so because these people, northern tribes of Israel, along with their allies, such as Syria and um, the Arameans, because they have consistently rejected God and allied themselves against God and his people, particularly the southern tribes of Judah and Benjamin, God casts them down. God's going to strike even Israel with judgment, but leave a remnant. In verse 4, in that day, the glory of Jacob will fade. And he uses all these images, particularly of harvest time. You go and you gather all the things from the field, but there's a few heads of grain left over. You go and get all the olives off the olive tree, but there's a few left in the top branches. You go and gather all the, all the fruit off of the fruit tree, but there's a few left over. We see that, for example, in verse 6. Gleanings will be left like the shakings of an olive tree, two or three on the topmost branch, four or five on the branches of a fruitful tree, declares the Lord, the God of Israel. And so even in this destruction, it will not be total, it will not be complete, even though the majority of people will face it, God is going to leave a remnant of the people that will turn to him and be preserved and worship him properly. And we see this idea of worship in verses 7 and 8. In that day, man will have regard for his maker, and his eyes will look to the Holy One of Israel. He will not have regard for the altars, the work of his hands, nor will he look to that which his fingers have made, even the ashram and incense stands. So I said a few moments ago, if destruction comes into your life, if it's full of misery and sorrow, you should ask yourself, have I sinned that God would bring this punishment upon me? That's the first question we ask. It's not the only question we ask. We also should ask ourselves, if difficulty and disaster comes into our lives, is it because I need to worship God properly and I have not? And so we see in verses 7 to 8, why does God bring destruction, particularly to Israel, his own people, these ten tribes in the north, why do they face this destruction? Because they were not doing what verses in 7 and 8 say. They were not having regard for the God who made them. They were not looking to the Holy One of Israel, to the true God. What were they doing in verse 8? They had had regard for altars that they had made, for idols that they had made, for ashram and incense stands. This was consistently a problem for the northern tribes of Israel. From the time of Jeroboam, when he split off from Solomon's son Rehoboam, all the way down the line, what was their consistent problem? They established a rival system of worship in which they said, we don't want to go down to Jerusalem because then the people might be reunited. We don't want to worship in the temple. We're going to set up golden calves like we had from Egypt. We're going to copy the, the idols of the nations around us. The gods of the Ammonites and the gods of, 
of Moab and the gods of whoever else, of the Philistines. We're going to worship all their gods and not the true God. So why ultimately does God bring disaster on the people of Israel? Well, in the middle here of chapter 17, it makes it clear. And if you go back and read, for example, 2 Kings, it's because they persisted in idolatry. God brought destruction on them to turn them away from that idolatry to true worship. It's fascinating to look at what happens with the people of Israel and Judah when you come to the New Testament times. The Pharisees and other people have a lot of issues, but one problem they do not have is going and copying all the pagan gods. They don't go to Rome's temples or to Greeks' temple, the, the, the temples of the Grecian gods and say, all right, we're going to pick that god and that god and that god to worship and we're going to bring them into our temple. No more idolatry. God uses the exile and the destruction and devastation he brings into the lives of his people to purge from them the idolatry that they had rested in. And we saw this, I think, before in um, trying to find the passage. I, I don't remember. Uh, here it is, chapter 10, verse 20. In that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. They won't rely on their allies. They won't rely on false gods. They will only trust in the one true God. And God uses this purging, this devastation, this destruction to accomplish that purpose. This comes through judgment that leaves desolation because of having forgotten God. Strong cities like forsaken places, branches cut down off of trees, the land will be a desolation. Why? Verse 10, because you have forgotten the God of your salvation, have not remembered the rock of your refuge, therefore you plant delightful plants and set them with vine slips of a strange God. That expression is a little bit difficult, but I think it's basically they're taking cuttings of the vines and using some sort of pagan superstition alongside it saying, well, this is going to grow because I'm worshiping this idol. And so instead of trusting in God, to give them a bountiful harvest, they're trusting in pagan gods. Instead of trusting in God as the one who's watching out for them, they're trusting in themselves and in these pagan gods. That's why this destruction comes. And the, the destruction is not limited to these few nations that are mentioned at the beginning of chapter 17, but the same spirit of rebellion against God, idolatry, going our own way, plotting and scheming against God's purpose. It extends to all the nations. We see this at the end of chapter 17, uh, this imagery of the waves of the sea crashing and roaring and, and moving all around. The, and you see the, the, the imagery, for example, in verse 12. They roar, the uproar, the rumbling, the rumbling. They rumble on like the rumbling. There's this, this the crashing waves look like they're going to come against God's people and, and, and flood over them. And this is a picture, the sea, the, the upheaval of it is a picture of the rebellion of the nations. And we talked, or not talked, but rather sang from Psalm 2 this morning, uh, where God looks down from heaven and sees all the chaos of the nations and their schemes and their attempts to come against him. And, and he laughs in derision, not in a joyous laugh, not in a this is funny kind of a laugh, but in a, in a mocking, scornful laugh to say, this is foolishness for the nations to think that they can rise up against God. The sea comes and goes at God's command, which is why when Jesus stills the Sea of Galilee, it's a sign that he's God. Just as God has power over creation, God has power over all the nations. They think that they can scheme against God and, and overthrow his ruler and go their own way. They will have no more success than the ocean will have to come up on the land if God says, no, you can't. And so uh, here we see 
that God rebukes and scatters them. He uses a couple of pictures to describe this. Um, the waters recede in the middle of verse 13. Uh, chaff from uh, harvest is just blown by the wind or dust that's blown before a, a gale, a windstorm. And so, you know, from this image of power, the crashing waves, the majestic strength of the sea, to this idea of they're like dust on the wind because they're opposing God. What is the end result of their destruction? It promotes certainty in God's people of God's judgment on those who oppose them. Such will be the portion of those who plunder us and the lot of those who pillage us. This is what God's going to do to those who oppose his people. And so, moving from confidence in false gods and wrong worship, they move to a settled confidence that God will deliver his people and punish their enemies. Our third contrast was between the worship of God and the worship of idols. This idea that worshiping idols leads to destruction, but worshiping God leads to confidence in his promises. Now we see one final idea as we come to chapter 18. Even pagans will be brought to pay homage to God as God. Chapter 18, we see this, that God uses proud people for judgment, yet humbles them for service. We see, first of all, that God chooses Cush to carry out judgment for him. And there's, again, these pictures here. Alas, O land of whirring wings, which lies beyond the rivers of Cush, envoys by the sea, and papyrus vessels on the surface of the water. Go, swift messengers, to a nation tall and smooth, a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation whose land the rivers divide. So here's people that are situated, their home country, down near Egypt. And they are people who go out on the sea. And just like if you looked at the surface of the Nile River or of the Mediterranean Sea, you'd see lots of little insects busily flying around and on the surface of the water and in the water. And all of these people are moving around and around like all these bugs on the surface of the water. And so it's the land of whirring wings that is pictured by the people moving about in their boats and all these things, just like all the insects. And this swarm that God summons, verse 3, as soon as a standard is raised on the mountains, you'll see it. As soon as a trumpet is blown, you will hear it. He's going to summon them, this huge swarm, like this huge swarm of insects or locusts or, or water bugs or dragonflies, whatever you want to say. God's going to summon them and this swarm is going to sweep over the land. And we see this imagery a lot in Isaiah, this idea that uh, people think they're serving themselves. And in fact, to some extent they are. They're doing what they want to do when they come and conquer various nations. But ultimately, God is the one who's turning them to his purpose. And so this swarm of insects, but actually people, is, is brought to do what God wants. But it pauses for a second in verse 4. For thus the Lord has told me, I will look for my dwelling place quietly like a dazzling heat in the sunshine, like a cloud of dew in the heat of harvest. Right before the swarm comes, there's this pause, and we look over here, and here's this imagery of God. He's not in upheaval. He's not part of the, the cloud of bugs that's busily swarming all around. He's the one who's directing them. He's the one who is just there, at peace, at calm, causing all this to happen. And then what is it that he does? We see in verses 5 uh, and 6, before the harvest, as soon as the, blood, the bud blossoms and the flower becomes a ripening grape, he'll cut off the sprigs with pruning knives and remove and cut away the spreading branches. They will be left together for mountain birds of prey and for the beasts of the earth. And the birds of prey will spend the summer feeding on them and the beasts of the earth will spend harvest time on them. 
So the, uh, it's about ready to harvest. When do you usually prune things? You prune them in the spring before the flowers come out, before the fruit is set on it. This is, the harvest is about to be gathered and he cuts off these fruitful branches. Why? I think it's a sign of judgment. But lest this nation think that they themselves are the ones who have done this or that they are the ones, they have no need of, of following God themselves. Verse 7 makes it clear, At that time, a gift of homage will be brought to the Lord of hosts from a people tall and smooth, even from a people feared far and wide, a powerful and oppressive nation, whose land the rivers divide, to the place of the name of the Lord of hosts, even Mount Zion. God causes even this nation that he uses in judgment against other peoples to come before him in reverence and bring him tribute, because this is the place that he has established. And this final image is a little bit unclear in what sense it parallels uh, Philippians 2, every knee shall bow, but the promise held out in Acts 2, when all these people hear uh, the gospel in their own language, their own tongue, at least some of the pagan peoples are going to come willingly to worship and to trust in God. So what should we learn then from the series of contrasts this morning? First, I think when we see the apparent failure of God's ruler, but the promise that he's going to raise up another one in chapter 14, I think we can't see the future, but we need to rest in God's promises. If God says his ruler will reign, then his ruler will reign, even if the current ruler is dead or fails to live up to the greatness of what was promised. The same is true today. Jesus shall reign, even though at times we doubt the extent or scope or strength of his kingdom. What else should we learn from these contrasts? God uses judgment and sorrow to turn people to his righteous judge. Acts 17, Paul's message to the people of Athens, makes it clear that Jesus is that judge. And so when you and I experience sorrow, or we see sorrow in those around us, one of God's purposes in it is to turn you to Jesus, just as it was in that day for him to turn them to the true worship of the God of Israel. And so if you and I encounter sorrow and it doesn't turn us to God, then we're ignoring the lesson of this passage because one of the reasons God brings sorrow is to cause us to depend on him more and to worship him as we ought. And finally, or not finally, but third, we see that God smites the pride of the nations to restore his people to true worship. And so when we see God's judgment, it should cause us to worship rightly, not to sneer at that destruction. So if it doesn't come to us, it's easy for us to look at another nation and be like, oh yeah, they forgot God. Of course they're going to have bad stuff happen to them. That's what we tend to do with the accounts of the people of Israel. Oh yeah, they were dumb. They kept turning after idols. I can't believe it. I'm nothing like them. We ought to be warned by these examples of what takes place and not in pride act like that has nothing to do with us. We should say, how do I need to worship God more faithfully, fervently, and in a proper way, not, oh, look what happened to them. I can't, can you believe what happened to them as though it's disconnected from our experience? And then finally, I think here from this last little section, we see that God's use of pagan nations and his power to turn their hearts to him means that we can't be proud in ourselves. We should confidently expect God's salvation to come to those that we think most unlikely to receive it. It's easy for us to say, look at what I've done, here's who I am, here's what I've accomplished, me, 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 me. And a passage like this, where this nation that is powerful, is basically God saying, yep, I took you here, and I put you here, and at the end of it, you're going to recognize that I'm God. If God can do that with this whole nation, God can certainly do that with us. So we should not take credit for things that God has done. 
What do you have that you haven't received? Paul says to the Corinthians. We should not um, doubt that God can change people's hearts even when we think it very unlikely. That person that you've been praying for for years and years and years to trust in Jesus, don't stop praying for salvation because God can do it years down the line. If God can take an entire nation and say, okay, you're going to go here, you're going to do this thing, and then you're going to pay reverence to me, God can do it with one person. For that matter, God's done it with you. I think for most of us here today, right? So from all of these glimpses of seemingly disconnected judgments against these four nations around the people of Israel, what are we supposed to learn? We're supposed to see that God is establishing his city. God is establishing his ruler. What sort of a ruler he's going to be. What sort of a people he's calling them to be. Um, I think there's all of these themes both point to what God was doing in a limited sense in the day of Isaiah through a righteous king like Hezekiah, but in a much greater sense what he's going to do in the end times when Jesus rules and reigns, accomplishes justice for the peoples, the nations come to the city where Jesus reigns from, and all the people gather to him, and we see the final establishment of the city and the king that God has appointed. And so God establishes his dynasty in Zion. God's ruler will reign. Can you see that day coming? Have you turned to him? Do you worship him in spirit and in truth? Do you yearn for others to worship him too? God establishes his dynasty in Zion. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these passages, they seem to have not a lot to do with us at first glance. We don't necessarily even recognize where all of these countries are. We wonder what, what relevance it has to do today, where we don't really have soldiers and armies in the way that this describes, where we don't really care about crops and food in the way that they did. Um, but yet, as we look closer, we see that this idea that you're establishing your ruler in the city that you've appointed is very relevant today. And without spiritualizing the whole thing and saying, well, it just is Jesus reigning in your heart because that there is an actual kingdom coming, there is a sense in which part of the application of this is that we would recognize that Jesus is king and that our lives are to be submitted to him and following after him as his people, not as his enemies, as those who find refuge in him from the consequences of our own sin and the brokenness and destruction of this world, looking to the day when we will see him visibly reigning and, uh, and we can share in that glory. And so, Lord, I pray that you would help us to contemplate the fact that you establish your ruler, that even when it looks like that plan has failed, it is not, that you use the judgments that you bring upon the earth, upon nations and individuals to turn us to repentance, to trust in him, to turn us from false worship to true worship, to remind us that your purposes will prevail and that all will eventually come and honor you. And so may we consider these truths this week. May they have an impact on our lives. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.